passage this morning is taken from Ezra chapter 1, pretty much the, the first chapter. And I've got a large font here, so I've got to hold it up a little higher. But it's uh, chapter 1 of Ezra and uh, into chapter 2 and a few verses out of chapter 2. So please uh, read with me from your bulletin. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout Israel, but also to put it in writing. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him in Jerusalem, in Judah. And if his people among you may go up to Jerusalem in Judah and build the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem, and may their God be with them. And in the locality where servants may now be living, the people are to provide them with silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with free will offerings for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose heart God has moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. All their neighbors assisted them with articles of silver and gold, with goods and livestock, and with valuable gifts, in addition to all the free will offerings. Moreover, King Cyrus brought out the articles belonging to the temple of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and had placed in the temple of, of his God. Cyrus, king of Persia, had them brought by Mithredef, the treasurer, who counted the amount to Seshbazar, the prince of Judah. This was the inventory. Gold dishes, 30. Silver dishes, 1,000. Silver pans, 29. Ten gold bowls, 30. Matching silver bowls, 410. And articles, 1,000. In all, there were 5,400 articles of gold and silver. Sheshbazar brought all these with the exiles when they came from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, these are the people of the province who came up from the captivity of the exiles, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had taken captive to Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to their own town, and company with Zerubbabel, Joshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mispar, Bigva, Rehum, and Bana. The following came up from the towns of Tel Mala, Tel Harsha, Kurab, Adon, and Emmer. They could not show that their families were descendants from Israel, the descendants of Delilah, Tobiah, and Nakoda, 652, and from among the priests. The descendants of Hobeah, Hakor, and Barzilla, a man who had married a daughter of Barzilla, the Gileadite, and was called by that name. These searched for their family records, but they could not find them and were so excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor ordered them not to eat any of the most sacred food until there was a priest ministering with the Urim and Thummim. The whole company numbered 42,360, besides the 7,337 male and female slaves, and they also had 200 male and female singers. They had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys, 
when they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury for this work 61,000 darius of gold, 5,000 minnows of silver, and 1,000 priestly garments. The priests, the Levites, the musicians, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people. And the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. May God bless his holy word. For those of you who don't know or remember, I'm the pastor of Christ Central Church. I've been out for about six weeks, and um, I appreciate those who stepped in. Charles, thanks a lot for organizing and getting people in here to preach the word to you. Um, while I was gone, I heard y'all heard some good stuff. Um, I heard y'all almost had a vote to get a new pastor and all that, but I survived it. Um, no, I'm glad to be back. Um, just so you know, this morning, Kelly's not here. She uh, had to go to ER last night because she has diverticulitis, which means little pieces of food can get caught in your intestine, and she has, like, funny-shaped intestines or something. Um, that's my late way of describing it. I'm not a doctor. Um, and it could be as small as a sesame seed or a popcorn kernel, and it gets infected. And so... Um, she is better. She's home, um, and it's just a matter of managing the pain and letting the antibiotics work. So she wanted to be here today, but she's not. Um, so please keep praying for her and her comfort through that. The uh, uh, I I think are, are the Hurleys here? Y'all here, aren't you? Raise your hand. We we prayed for them this morning in the triplets. Um, and so they let y'all out the hospital to come to church today. That's good. It's good to see y'all. I know y'all been through a lot. It's good that you guys are here today. Um, so today we start <clears throat> our new sermon series in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. Which, just to let you know, in the oldest manuscripts, they're put together as one, not two, separate books. As we at Christ Central, I believe, begin to move forward and onward as a church in a pivotal time in our own church history and a lot of your own personal lives, I believe this book is important. Important to us trusting and looking to God for how we individually and corporately as believers are called to worship God in this world. And our growing understanding of how this works begins here in Ezra chapter 1 and 2. Yes, with all those numbers and all those crazy names. Thank you, Mike Moore, for reading through those names. I told him, just say it real fast with confidence. And uh, people will believe you know what you're talking about and know the names. And study the Aramaic, Hebrew, and Babylonian, whatever, that you needed to do to get this. You have most of the text in your bulletin from chapters 1 and 2. And there are two points out of all of that I want us to draw out of this narrative today. And we're going to be going through these books, so I'm not going to do everything out of these narratives today. Some of these themes will repeat and we'll emphasize them greater later. But here are the two points I want you to get today from this opening chapters of, of Nehemiah, I mean of Ezra, that history itself is stirred and shaken by the hands of God. 
And that along with it, our personal stories, the story of his people corporately are stirred and shaken as well by the hands of God. History and our story are stirred and shaken by the hands of God. The year is 538 B.C., and it's been about 50 years since Babylon invaded Israel, the land of the Jews, destroying their holy temple, stealing its resources, <coughs> excuse me, holy furnishings and structure, structures, and exiling her people, especially exiling the key leaders away from Israel to Babylon. In 539, the Persian emperor, Cyrus conquered Babylon and its immense empire. And in Persian leadership style, now understand how this works, as perfect polytheists believing in the presence and power of many gods and and taking seriously that all the gods represented by all the little kingdoms they've conquered, by all of its people, each one of those gods must be worshipped well. And so Cyrus decides to issue a decree that the Jews who are among his kingdom should return to Israel, to Jerusalem, the holy city, to reconstruct the temple and reinstitute their worship of Yahweh. But look carefully how the Bible describes Cyrus's actions. Look with me at verse 1 through 4. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of, of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem." And let each survivor, survivor, of course, of the, of the uh, exile, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. I don't know if you caught Cyrus's decree and what it was saying in verses 2 through 4, which we believe the author of Ezra probably copied this decree off the empirical scrolls. But just so you know, if you didn't know, the God of the Bible would not have defined himself like Cyrus's official empirical decree describes him. Because according to the Bible, God's word about himself, God is not just the God of the Jews or just the God who is in heaven, or the God of Israel, or the God, as verse 3 says, who is in Jerusalem. He is actually, according to his own self-revelation, the most high God of heaven and earth, and the only true and one God over all creation. 
And furthermore, unlike what Cyrus is thinking, he is able to do here, as is, is most of these polytheistic emperors thought, the God of the Bible is not appeased. He is not mollified or, or bought off or kept at a safe distance or, or controlled by Cyrus's kingly decree to send his people back to worship. On the contrary, Ezra opens by telling us what? According to the prophecies in Jeremiah and more pointedly in Isaiah, that it is Cyrus who is being flipped and turned and twisted and hijacked by God, that his earthly kingly plan is but a play in the hands of God's overarching plan, that that, that Cyrus's kingdom and the Persian kingdom have been subverted by the will and power of God. I say subverted. Because only the people who knew God or were privy of of the prophecy or word or or way or character would would even have a halfway chance of seeing and deciphering what was really going on at the kingdom level. The Bible puts it this way in verse 1. God stirred the spirit of Cyrus to act. You know what God did? He did an espionage of the heart. God crossed the borders of of Cyrus's heart and will and inner plans without him knowing just how much and for what final purpose to do what he, God, wills and wants. And so what we can learn from this is that mankind kingdoms and empires and and strong wills and desires and and self-determination or vision are, are not only unable to stop God's will and way to come, they will and have been used as mediums and political machinery and, and pawns and unwilling protagonists in God's plan to be worshipped as God. Let me say this. Everyone And everything, every brilliant, successful, dominant, shiny movement or person or institution who ever lived or existed or ever will in history, the so-called movers and, and shakers are working and slaving for the ultimate plans of God. He is stirring them in the world and the world they think is theirs and ours is shaken by the hand of God. Because what is crazy here is that, that with Cyrus being an emperor, the whole world that they knew shakes at the stirring of Cyrus and Persia with them. Understand the stirring thing affects everyone. As a matter of fact, he did this for more than just the Jews, as I mentioned earlier. All nations and worshipers of the gods of those nations were ordered and allowed to go back home. If you look at the, the, the scrolls or, or what they call the, the empirical cylinders of, 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 of Cyrus, you'll see that the Jews were only but one group that Cyrus ordered that the worship be perfected among. God stirred Cyrus way back before he issued this decree. Understand, Cyrus was, was just a... What, This may sound crazy, like a local king. 
right? Like, like, like just a, a, a vassal, vassal king of, of like one little kingdom, of, of one little territory. And what we know from him historically is he got real ambitious and he got real hungry and he defeated the other kings around him. And then eventually said, let me take up the whole Persian empire. And then he took Babylon with little or no pushback from Babylon. See the stirring. I want you to hear this. The stirring of Cyrus took place possibly 40 years before this decree actually was issued. God made him the aggressive leader of Persia. God moved his heart to begin to do it. If you look at the prophecies in Scripture, it says that this force is coming from the east, and God is beginning to move on this king now. This was way before Cyrus or Persia could ever even be thought to have beat Babylon. The Jews, if you were to look at world history, now we've got it because we got the scripture, right? So, so we can see what's going on. It's been, it's been put in scripture and, and, and kind of interpreted in a way where we can look at it. But if you were there back in the 500s B.C., what you would see is just that the Jews were just one small piece of a Persian kingdom decree. They were just one small block, but that one small block was God's main point of redemptive history. I say this because I want you to know that God's press and exposure on happenings in this world are small. He don't even make the back page, Right? He, he, in his historical redemptive plan for mankind or you who call, him, call yourselves as people, get no credit at the G20. They get no credit on CNN or Fox or even ESPN. But his lack of credit getting by the media or me or you and our inability to see it is not because he's not in control and moving things towards his perfect will. He is, you and I just can't see it. What God might be doing maybe years away, he, he might be stirring history and stuff and, and maybe happening in politics and, and the economy. And, and let me not just make it world issues here. I just did that because of the way it's, it, it, it's, it's put with Cyrus, the king of Persia. But, but in your individual lives, in your family histories, in all that ever happened to produce who you are today, of families who came to America, either on a ship of slaves or, or came over and immigrants or however you came over, whether you crossed the border illegally, whatever it is, the history of that, you have no idea. And those people back then had no idea that God was stirring and shaking the history of the world and your individual lives to bring you to a possible place to know and worship him. And to read about it in the paper, but to hear about your history has nothing to do with the stirring of God is to deny who he is and who he says he is. He's the God who stirs hearts and minds and plans and history and shakes his perfect will out of it. And so guess what? 
We can and are called to pray for and plead to him and praise him. We can have a prayer and praise time involved in all that is going on as God's people. And we can look at the news on the internet or on TV or hear it on the radio. And we can look back at our family histories and we can see what we've gone through. And we can pray and plead and praise God and say, God, your perfect will is happening when anything or anyone is happening. God is stirring and shaking for his glory and his kingdom to come. But King Cyrus here is not the only one being stirred. Look with me at verse 5. So he puts out this decree and it says, Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. And all who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with with goods, with beasts, and with costly wares beside all that was freely offered. There's obviously two groups. There are groups that may have stayed behind and offered them stuff, and then there are people who are trying to get enough money to get it going, give all the stuff. And, and Cyrus is saying, hey, those who have the ability, give it to those who are called to go back and build the temple. But it says that Cyrus the king also brought up the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed it in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in charge of, of Mithridoth, the, the treasure who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was a number of them. And, and it has all these numbers. I'm not going to read them. All the vessels, all these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon to Jerusalem. Now, these were the people of the province who came out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive of Babylon. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel. Listen to that name, good, Zerubbabel, right? Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Reliah, Mordecai, Belshan, Mesbar, Bigva, uh, Rehum, and Bana. Stirred and shaken by God, his own people, to show them who they really were. Now, understand that these Jews have been in Babylon, exiled out of Israel and away from their religion, God-centered culture and government, some as many as 70 years, most of somewhere between 40 and 50 years. And I'm sure some of the old heads that were exiled had died and gone on. Others came of age and got married and developed careers in Babylon. As a matter of fact, if we were to look at some of the names of the returnees in the list, most of the list you don't have here, but, but you have names like Sheshabar in verse 11. And then Zerubbabel in verse 2 in chapter 2. And their Babylonian names now are in line with their position as princes of Babylon and now Persian-appointed officials like senators and governors over the Jewish part of the kingdom. And a number of Jews had started businesses in Babylon. One historical background book I read told about the first bank, national bank, was established by Jewish exiles in Babylon. Folk began to make a life there. They thought this was it for them. And then look what happens in verse 59 through 63. Look with me. 
So they kind of call in the roll. Everyone's checking off. Now, I understand why this is true in Israel, because in God's economy of things and his people, everybody had a land. Everybody had an inheritance. So when they went back home, everybody had a plot. Everybody had a house to live in. And for the priest, and we're going to get to that in a minute, the priest did not have a particular land. In fact, they had to live in certain places in the kingdom among the people, and then they got their food based on the sacrifices. So the sacrifice was given to God. They put it down in the fire, and whatever was left, the priest got to take home in a Tupperware, right? He got to take it home for his family and eat it. So it was important if you think you're a priest, for you to eat, you want to be a priest, right? So let's see what happens here. The following were those who came up from Talmalah and Talhashar and Cherub and Adan and Emmer. Those, they, though they could not prove their father's house or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the, the sons of Tobiah and the sons of Nakoda, 652, also the sons of the priests. Now here's the priests, the, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Haggaz and the and the sons of Brazilia, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Brazilia, the Gilead, and was called by their name. Now, let me do a little quick tidbit about this, is that it was important to him that this, this man, this wife that he married, her dad was real, rich, and popular, and well-known. So instead of her taking his last name, he took hers. <laughs> Whatever gets the bills paid. The Bible goes on to say, these stopped their registration among those enrolled in genealogies, but they were not found there. And the Bible says, so they were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food. Remember that food I talked about? Until there should be a priest who consult the Urim and the Thummim, and it's this thing they wear, and they would ask God questions, and the rocks would light up yes or no. Okay? Just accept that fact. That's how it worked. There are no electronics, no batteries, no double A's. Lord, what should we do? Light up red if it's yes. Boop, and it would light up. This was the Old Testament. Things like happened back then like that. The Bible says there were those who didn't even know what tribe or land they were from and had inherited even some of those who thought they were priests were so cut off from the knowledge of their lineage or found it not so important to remember or were so ripped from their land in the first place that they, had, they didn't have the right paperwork or right family name to be allowed into the priesthood. Maybe they only remembered the Babylonian names, which would not have helped them. All this to say that these Jews were mixed up and mixed in with the world, separated from their land and cult and faith, and were now identificationally and largely Babylonian. Much of their identity as God's people and what that meant were lost in the cloud and noise of a pagan and godless or, or God-lowering and non-worshipping uh, um, world around them. And even now, it's a part of them. These returnees were trapped and surrounded and covered in, in what I would describe as the soup of dominating governments and wealth and culture and systems of the world. See, these emperors knew what they were doing. 
the exile was like a crock pot where Babylon took all the influential people groups and their cultures and religions and let them stew in Babylonian stock for like 50 plus years. And much of their historical resolve and what I would describe as connective spiritual tissue had broken down. Who they were individually as God's people became a defining part of the bigger kingdom. They got lost and they conceded and they melted in a mix of the world that seemed to have control and dominion over them. I mean, they were relegated to make a living and a life in what, according to their heritage and faith, was a pagan world. And that should sound familiar for some of us believers. We are constantly lost and consumed and confused and melted into this world. We, we work so much and, and chase after so much and, and worry about so much simply according to the cultural norms and idols of the world that we live in. Christians. Yeah, your friend that might have brought you to church. Church people are just as likely as non-Christians to be consumed with position and money and jobs and homes and cars and childcare and parenting and good schools and success and kids' activities and financial security and grades and politics and morals and food and, and good looks and lawns and nails and hair and muscles and TV show series and entertainment and, of course, college football. <laughs> so much so. So much so that we have found ourselves and our faith and connection with God and each other stewing, stewed down and lost in a soup of a people who live, I thought about it, in a six and a three-quarter day exile away from the direct worship of God. And if this worship service went over two hours, it would be complaint. Why? Because we need our six day and three quarter perfectly to live in this world because we begin to worry about food and naps and games. God, you get your one quarter a week, be happy. One quarter of a day of a week. This is how we live, mainly in exile from direct Worship. Now, some of us a little better. We go to community group. Great. Six and a half. And somehow we expect not to feel distant from God. And thus we all the time and at any moment can forget and act like those who can't remember their heritage. Some of you don't even know why you're here today. I'm with these church folk. I don't know how I got here. All I knew was food. Some of us here because we got guilted in being here. Some of us here because if we ain't here, somebody's going to make us feel bad. All here because of some worldly, get this, like Cyrus's decree, some worldly decree that we have to be moral or God's going to be mad at us, or, or that our world's going to fall apart if we don't live right. And so we got to come to church in order to get it right, to live right, so that our exiled world and lives can be made right. We come for show. I mean, our, 
our faith becomes the stuff we sometimes see when we sometimes open the book of the Bible or go to church. But a living, building the kingdom faith, we are often exiled from. And now for many of us, our spiritual lives, church and God and all this stuff, are often guilt-producing burdens in our six and three-quarter exiled lifestyles. I'm with you. I'm no better. I feel guilty and burdened sometimes by feeling I got to be called and decreed to worship God in some way. And like Judaism and Persia and Babylon, Christianity is no longer a scary thing in our society. It's no longer a threat. It's harmless. Sometimes people say, hey, you saw this TV guy, this evangelist, this TV pastor. What do you think about him, Pastor Brown? Sometimes I use this term. He's harmless. No, he's not directly immoral, not saying something against Jesus, but he ain't really bringing a gospel. It's harmless. In Christianity, we're harmless, just like the Jews were in Babylon. There's nothing going on. Our names, our tags have been changed to fit the system. Churches are tax-exempt. Guess what? They were tax-exempt back then um, in Persia because our God is good for and belongs to the kingdom, or in this case, our capitalism and certain political aspirations. Man, we are so hijacked by the political system. The church is one of those blocks. Politician comes up. How are we going to win an election? Well, we got to get those evangelical Christians on our side. And what do we do? Yay, we go. Automatically. That's who we are now. That's who the church is now. It isn't its own entity anymore. Our names and designations go like this. That's a moral group. Or they're all about love. Or they're all about community activism and making a difference for the city and doing good things in our neighborhood and prosperity seeking from God because God's going to bless us if we do all the right things. And God bless Americans and hard work, right, and big return. God bless means instead of Christians. We're all of those things. And we like it because we get to fit in, man. I get lost all the time. I'm glad. Oh, you're the pastor of Christ Church? I heard y'all doing great things in the community. Ah, that feels good. I'm glad he didn't mention Jesus. Yeah, we lead with that. Our church is doing great things in the community. You know, we, we just good people. Don't mention Jesus. Right? We are that. Right? We're, we're no longer... People who believe in the name of Jesus Christ, they believe salvation through him alone for all people. We have even twisted and changed our biblical theology to and had changed it and taken its edges away to make it fit in. We have become lost down here and in our hearts. I, I really connect with the scene in Malcolm, uh, I mean Spike Lee's movie Malcolm X, and Malcolm X, played by Denzel Washington, goes to jail. And this fictional character, Bane, a Muslim preacher, Ask Malcolm as Malcolm X is, is putting straightening agent in his hair in, a, in the prison shower, right? Who are you? Right? Do you know who you are? And then later in the story in prison, the same fictional preacher preaches to a group of black inmates and tells them, a la good black Muslim theology, right? That they are a lost tribe in America. Okay. Let me be, let me be careful here because I need this to be put on tape, Right? 
Islam is an unfinished religion. It's roads dead and before Jesus' destination, which makes it a dead and religious and cult. But I get what was being said. God's people are in danger of being lost. The church, God's community, not just any community, God's worshiping and loving Jesus' community is all wrapped up in this world as individuals, families, and large groups. And as I look at scripture today, you know what? I believe if it were not for the official decree order from King Cyrus's office to the officials and people, I would guess that many of the people of God, especially the well-to-do and the leadership, would not have risen up, as the Bible says, and gone up. But Cyrus was stirred up by God to issue this decree, which was used by God in part to stir his people so that they could see themselves as God's people as different as his and who they truly were. Look again at verse 5 with me. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred to go up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. It says rose up. That means they got up. That means they left what they were doing and who they were in Babylon. They pulled themselves and set themselves apart from those who were not stirred up by the Lord to rebuild the temple. You know what I get a picture of? Of a slotted spoon in the soup or a colander or strainer. But when you pour soup through it, right, to get that good stuff, that meat, the crab legs, the sausage, right, in the boil, God took the slotted spoon of his providence and he stirred it to get his people ready in their hearts. And then he raised them up out of and in the world that they were in to do his will. Let me say this. There is a decree gone out to God's people. To those of you who are yet his, yet who caught up in an impossible rat race of labor and acceptance and pain and hardship and bills and bosses and sicknesses and on the other side, success and pleasure and personal happiness. And the decree is that God has called you. This is the decree of Ezra. God has called you to do his will as his people, to be holy and righteous by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this list in Ezra are all types of people, from from officials to those who lay bricks, to those who would sweep the temple, to singing in the choir, to take their place in the kingdom and in this world. God has called you. Who are in, who are is the rise up in and out of this world, who are called to play a role and part in God building his kingdom in this world, but by first calling and stirring up his grace and love and power and story of the gospel within you. I ask you, like Bane asked Malcolm X in that movie, who are you? Who are we together? Who has God called us to be? Where are you, people and person of God? Why are you doing what you do every day? What are you doing? And why is God pleased and worshiped by what you do? What does your life mean in the divine scope of things? How does your life worship God? Do you know your place and way in this world according to God's call on your life? Do you really want to know? It could be scary when you find out. And God through his word will tease some of this out as we go through Ezra and Nehemiah as a corporate group of people. Apart from God stirring in our hearts and lives, 
and shaking history and the individual histories of our lives and world history itself, you and I, hear this now, you and I cannot and will not know the answers to these questions. Let's accept the fact. We're exiles. We're not on the other side yet. We're not in the promised land yet. But God has called us here, apart from the world, in our hearts and in our lives, to worship him. But you will not be able to come unless God has and will stir and shake your life. I don't know where you are on the list. I don't know how stuck or stalled you are in your faith. I don't know if you are a leader or follower doing great things or just everyday things. You can know this. If you are his today in this message, now, now, as you sit here right now, yeah, right now is a defining moment. I hate when people say that. This is your defining moment, but this is a defining moment right here. I believe God's speaking to you because this is the word. And I've been called just to kind of say what it says in a you know, longer way. So you can get it. So whatever you slept on 10 minutes ago, now you're getting now because I stopped and did the dramatic pause. He's speaking to you. Don't look around. To you and to y'all, Christ Central. Some of y'all have no idea your heritage. You have no idea or limited knowledge of what Christ has done for you. We need to put ourselves in a position to be stirred, shaken, saved, and lifted by the decree of freedom for you and me to worship him. You know, Cyrus's decree was not the final and perfect decree from exile to worship. The Bible tells us over 2,000 years ago, unlike an unwitting Cyrus, God's king of king and lord of lords, God's emperor in full unity and love of God's will, gave and provided for a decree for all who would trust in him to come and belong to and worship God by grace. No, you might not be able to find your name in a list right now. No, you might have traded everything in in your life. You might have been a sellout Christian all of your life, and now is the time. And now Jesus, understand, by grace has given you an opportunity to come and worship him and find your name among the list of the redeemed and to then walk in that. He has removed, like King Cyrus said, and all this money and, and worship stuff back. Jesus has removed all barriers and bondages and provided all the riches of his righteousness and power and grace, even in the midst of the sin that caused you to be exiled from God, even though you might have denied God and, 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 and failed to mention his name and never opened the Bible in your life. Jesus has provided everything you need to be his and be his people. There is nothing stopping you. There is a decree from the Most High God through His Son, Jesus Christ, to call you 
to worship him. Free to have relationship with him and with his people to worship him. Through Jesus, God has stirred in our lives in this world. We'll shake.